Welcome to the Cork Report podcast. I'm Len Thompson, founder of the Cork Report. Today's podcast is actually the first episode of my personal podcast in this feed. I'm calling it Press Fraction, and while it will mostly be interviews with the people, places, and passions behind the Eastern wines I love most, there'll be some other formats woven in too. The idea is to try a bunch of stuff, see what's good and what sticks, and then focus on that. Today's episode is actually a bit of a cheat. It's actually the audio portion of a virtual seminar that I hosted for the New York Wine and Grape Foundation in late November. I led a group of 20 to 30 or so uh, members of the New York wine trade through a flight of sparkling wines from Malaya Vineyards, Pleasant Valley Wine Company, Glenora Wine Cellars, Dr. Constantine Frank, and Lens Winery. If you really want to see my face for some reason, and of those of the winery reps, uh, you can find the the full video replay out on the New York Wine and Grape Foundation's YouTube channel, along with all the other great uh, seminars they've been doing. I'd recommend that. Uh, In exchange for letting me republish this audio, uh, the foundation also asked that I mention their December sessions, so let me do that. On December 15th, my good friend Carlo DeVita will be hosting New York's Heritage and Hybrid Wines. As many of you probably know, Carlo worked with many of those grapes for years when he was a winery owner and winemaker, so I'm sure he's going to crush that one. I'm actually hoping to have him on soon to talk about a variety of things. Two days later, on December 17th, Kevin Zraeli, yes, that Kevin Zraeli, will host a seminar titled Leading Varietals of New York State, Riesling, Merlot, and so much more. That should definitely be an interesting one. Curious to hear what Kevin has to say. Uh, Those two are for the trade and media only. And then finally, on December 18th, Wanda Mann will host New York's New Year's Eve Bubbly, which is open to trade, media, and consumers. So if you're a New York wine lover, I'd definitely check that one out. For more information, visit newyorkwines.org. And without further ado, here's the audio replay of the session I hosted on New York's Sparkling Wine. Cheers. I think we can go ahead and get started. Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. We have a lot of wine to talk about and taste today. Um, before we start, I just want to thank the New York Wine and Grape Foundation for asking me to, to host today's session about sparkling wines. Uh, th- I don't know about you guys, but this series of sparkling taste, I mean, sparkling tasting, virtual tastings has really taken the edge off of not being able to do these sorts of things in person. Although uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm like you guys, I sure do miss them. I know many of you already. I'm, I'm looking at the list and I see a lot of familiar names. I, I know at least most of you uh, in passing via social media or uh, elsewhere. But just in case you don't know me, I'm Len Thompson, and I've been writing about, I'm a Long Island-based wine writer and wannabe podcaster. I've been writing about New York wines for the better part of two decades now. And uh, now that I'm almost 20 years into taking New York wine seriously, some might suggest too seriously, uh, I'm more convinced than ever that the, the diversity of grapes and wines being made is really what makes this industry one that's exciting and one that matters. Um, it's, it's important to, this, this is my, my own little personal thing, New York wine isn't just Riesling or Cabernet Franc or Merlot or Chardonnay, it's not any single grape. Um, the, the, the fact that the state's able to grow so many different grapes, like I, I, I can't think of an, another state or region that, that, grow, that grows as many different grapes. Um, it's just, it's a great thing. Um, and so we're talking about sparkling wines today, uh, there's a long history of sparkling wine in New York state, um, which you'll hear a little bit about today from some of our panelists. Uh, production is, is still on the rise, so it's it's um it's an important part of New York's wine past, present, and future. And we have we have quite an array and styles of wines represented today, so this should be fun. Um, before I introduce our panelists, just some housekeeping items and some ground rules from yours truly. First, uh, if you have questions, please use the Q and A box right in Zoom, and please ask questions. Uh, I've joined a lot of these sessions during the pandemic, both wine and otherwise. 
both as a host and as an attendee. And these are always better when it's a conversation rather than a lecture. Um, and if you could help us out by putting your questions in the Q&A, that, that will help us um, keep, it, keep, keep track of them so we can make sure we get through as many as we can. And if there are any that we don't get to for some reason, we can capture those and, we'll, and I'll have the winemakers follow up with you after the fact. Second, I've also encouraged our presenters to ask you questions. So, and, and, if, and if they do ask you questions, um, you can feel free to respond to them in, in the chat rather than the Q&A. Um, so ask questions in the Q&A, answer them in the chat. And the last thing for me is actually just a repeat from the first one, please ask questions. I know you guys aren't just here for the samples. Uh, you guys are all respected folks in, the, in the, the trade and media. You could have gotten the samples without this seminar. Um, you're here because you wanna learn. There's a lot of sparkling wine knowledge on this panel today. So take advantage of it. Um, I think that's it for me. And I know you didn't sign up to hear me talk. So let's, uh, let's get to our panelists. Today, we are joined by Bruce Tripp, winemaker at Malaya Estate Vineyard in the Hudson Valley. Patrick Doyle is joining us from Ple <clears throat> excuse me, Pleasant Valley Wine Company. Steve DiFrancesco is the winemaker at Glenora Wine Cellars. <laughs> He's here with us as well. Um, from Dr. Frank uh, on Cuca Lake, we actually have general manager Megan Frank and sparkling winemaker Eric Bauman. And last but not least, we, we do have uh, Thomas Spotak from, from the Lens Winery here on the North Fork of Long Island. Oh, and I forgot to mention, we also have, also have, th have three polls that I'm, that I'm gonna be popping up today during the session, just to make sure you're all paying attention, including this first one, which is uh, fairly straightforward. Um, how many New York sparkling wines have, have you had before today? So we'll give everyone a, a few seconds to do that. Um, in the meantime, I'm gonna invite Bruce to, uh, to kick us off with, with, the, with the, the Malaya 2017 Procedo Sparkling Rosé, which uh, he, he makes using grapes that you might not necessarily think think of for sparkling. Um, but before he dives into that, I, I, I want to, uh, I'm going to ask everyone the same question. Fair warning, everybody. Um, when you're, Bruce, when you're, when you're not drinking your own sparkling wine, what, what sparkling wine are you typically drinking? Well, typically I'll, I'll choose a New York wine. Several of the producers that are on the panel here, I've had several of them and enjoyed them very much. Uh, but our home uh, AVA, uh, Towsy uh, produces a nice sparkler as well. Absolutely. And that's typically the one that I would go if I'm not having uh, some of our own sparkling wine. All right, that, that, that's awesome. Thanks, Bruce. Um, so so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about Malaya, which, which um, we, we have a lot of, we, we have a, a lot of, of, of long time sparkling wine producers on this tasting. We, we, your winery is still pretty new. So why don't you just tell everyone a little bit about what you're doing and, um, and then tell us a little bit about this wine in particular. Well, first, I just want to thank New York Wine and Grape for putting this on and you, Len, for hosting us. And uh, thank you to all the other panelists. Um, Malaya, we, we formed the company in, uh, in 2015. Our first crush was in 2015. It was a uh, even today's production is modest compared to some of the other panelists. We're doing about 2,000 cases a year now um, with plans to go up a little bit more than that uh, over the next couple of years. Um, so uh, we just opened our uh, tasting room less than a year ago. Uh, it's uh, been a great success. There seems to be a lot of buzz locally with people coming out, even during COVID, uh, and enjoying our wines. Uh, it's been quite a pleasure. Our vineyard, uh, most of our vineyard is very young. Uh, at the tasting room, we have about 11 acres of grapes. 
quite a mixed bag of uh, things, uh, you know, Cab Franc Riesling, of course. We've also grown some Blaufrankisch, some Chardonnay, and some Gruner. Uh, and we're really kind of excited as these are going to be coming into fruit probably uh, next uh, next winter, I'm sorry, <laughs> next fall. Um, and with uh, mainly our Cab Franc, uh, which is at the top of the hill. Um, so we're quite excited about that uh, coming going forward. Um, so Malaya, uh, basically, uh, it was formed by, uh, there's three partners in Malaya. Uh, there's Barry Malaya, uh, Ed Evans, and myself as being the uh, principal owners of the, of the uh, winery. Um, like I said, we started in, in 2015. So things are really kind of, uh, we're still kind of young in the business. Um, and I feel like that we're getting a, a, a warm reception from, uh, you know, the local people and coming out and tasting our wines. Yeah, that's, that's great, Bruce. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Procedo? Um, well, Procedo, you know, uh, we actually... It's, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely made with, with some interesting grapes that you don't normally associate with sparkling wine. So we'd love to hear more about right. that. Um, well, the, the Procedo Rosé, uh, it basically, this is, uh, it's a forced carbonation process. So, and the idea was to have it be a, just a light sparkle to it, sort of on the lines of a frisant. Um, and really what we're looking for here is to just enhance the rosé so that, um, you know, as a summer sipping wine, uh, kind of like, you know, I like to, to, to say I like to, you know, and they, after a long day out on the vineyard, uh, to sit back and, and as the sun's setting, kind of have a glass of uh, Procedo Rosé to just take the edge off the day. Uh, and it's quite a pleasant, um, uh, you know, uh, sip. Uh, what's nice about this wine is it's got, it retains quite a bit of the, uh, the fruit that you would expect from a Rosé wine. Uh, it's a dry wine, uh, and it's got that nice sparkle to give it just a little freshness to linger through the, uh, through the taste. Um, we use, in this wine, I use uh, quite a myriad of, uh, of mainly Bordeaux varieties. There's uh, a little bit of, of, there's probably the most of anything is the Merlot that's in it. We also have some Cab Sauv in it. There's uh, some Cab Franc in it. Uh, we also have a little Blaufrankisch in there, which is uh, kind of an oddball in this, but uh, I think it works. Uh, and basically what's happening is, is we're pulling a little bit of juice off of each of our red uh, production. Uh, you know, when we're in the, uh, a, a cold soak is when we pull that, that juice off for our rosé wines, but also for the rosé uh, the Procedo Rosé, um, sort of a, a, well, yeah, uh, and the, like I said, the key thing with this wine is, is that we're trying to just, just elevate the Rosé experience uh, with a little bit of the freshness from the bubbles. Thanks, Bruce. I'm looking to see if there's any questions. 
I don't see any coming in at the moment. Um, so, uh, so I'm going to ask you the second of the questions I'm going to ask everybody. Um, so, so, so what is your ideal way to enjoy the, this wine? Well, as I started saying earlier, uh, I love to sit back, you know, hot summer day. Uh, you know, I've, I've been sitting on the tractor working. Maybe I've been out in the field pulling weeds, you know, and it's pouring a glass of this and just kicking back and just say, ah, yeah, this is what it's all about. <laughs> that, that sounds wonderful. Thank you very much, Bruce. Um, oh, I, I just see one question. Um, hi, Bruce. Thank, Amy, thank you for asking a question. Um, hi, Bruce. Thanks for sharing this. Are you buying your Merlot? And did you make the still wine for this with the sparkling in mind? Or is this also the blend for your, for your still rosé? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, well, the, uh, the grapes actually come from several locations, both uh, at both extremes of the state. Uh, we did get the Merlot actually came from, uh, the Merlot and the Blaufrankisch came from out in Fredonia, Double A Vineyards. Um, and we also got, uh, you know, the, the Cab Sauv, um, yeah, and the, and the Cab Franc came from down in Long Island. Two growers down there, Anthony Signino, we got the Cab Sauv from, and uh, Joe Riley, we got the uh, Cab Franc from. And generally speaking, this is uh, the base for our rosé wines. Uh, so our standard rosé is the same mix, with the exception that... Um, well, no, and, and then I blend a little bit of Vidal in there just to lighten the color because uh, sometimes I get a little, you know, the extract is quite well. Uh, so I wanted to lighten that in this particular version with a little bit of Vidal. That also came from the western part of the state from Dennis Rack. Great. Thanks, Bruce. I think, I think that's it. So I think we can go ahead and move on. You're off the hook, sir. <laughs> thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, next up, we're going to go to Patrick from Pleasant Valley, um, which again is a wine that you might not, uh, a wine made from grapes that you might not necessarily think of um, for sparkling. But um, Patrick, before we dive in, I'm going to ask you as well, when you're not drinking your own, what, um, what sparkling wine will most often find its way into your glass? Uh, good morning, Len. Thank you. Thanks to the Wine and Grape Foundation. And I'm, I'm not making this up. When I drink uh, sparkling wine, it's typically from New York and it's typically Glenora or Dr. Frank. Well, that worked out well, didn't it? <laughs> Great, thank you very much. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's impossible to, to have a sparkling wine conversation in New York, um, especially, when, especially one that, that you're a part of without talking about the history of Pleasant Valley. Um, so can you just, just give, I mean, yeah, I believe Pleasant Valley goes back to the mid 1800s. So if you could just give us a little bit of information about that and then uh, tell us a little bit about this wine. Sure, so um, Pleasant Valley started in 1860 um, and it was you know, with hybrid grapes originally. And then um, in the early 1870s, we got into sparkling wines and um, started making champagne and our champagnes won um, a number of awards and some prestigious European comp competitions in the late 1800s. Um, going into the early 1900s, pre-prohibition, uh, things were going very strong. Our, our champagne was one of the top champagnes in the country. Um, and then we made it through prohibition. Um, 
as U.S. bonded winery number one. There's a long sordid story of corporate ownerships and changes, but uh, Gold Seal became a part of um, our operation. And um, in 1995, my dad, um, after the wine, after the, the 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 brands had been sold and the winery was about to close due to a bunch of corporate changes, um, my dad bought the um, the brand back and ultimately the real estate back, and uh, we've just been trying to keep it going for uh, the last 25 years. Um, so, you know, we we are very proud of the heritage, and uh, it's a big, old, expansive place, and it's a tough place to keep going, but we're 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 just moving right along. That's great. And then, um, yeah, so this wine is a blend of Seval, Cayuga, and Aurore. Is that right? That's right. Um, so the Gold Seal Blanc de Blanc is a champagne that, um, wow, a number of years ago, Steve would know better than me, but was, was you know, the sort of top Gold Seal champagne. Um, we, we brought it back just a couple of years ago. It has traditionally been... Um, you know, either mostly Chardonnay or some some blend of hybrids. And uh, for this particular um, blend, we used Cayuga, Seval, and Aurora, which are sort of classic hybrid grapes for for our champagnes. Um, this is a really good anytime champagne. Um, it, it was blended by uh, Beth Witt, who was our winemaker. She has since left us, but um, we're we're pretty happy with it. Right. And there's, there's a couple of questions that have come in, so we can go ahead and ask those. Um, I love hearing about the incredible uh, history at PV, Patrick. Thanks for that. Question, how committed are you to hybrids and what do you think they bring to the sparkling category? And what is your favorite hybrid for sparkling? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think we, um, you know, we try to do what we've been doing historically as well as we can. I know that there's a, there's, there's a little bit of back and forth about it, but Len, I think I think as you said, you know, the state is is a big state. There's a lot of different stuff going on here. And we we have had a long tradition of using hybrids for our sparklers. And um, there isn't any reason to to mess with that as far as we're concerned. <laughs> if it's not broke, don't fix it. That's right. All right. Uh, a couple more questions for you. Actually, a bunch of them are coming in. So this uh -oh. is good. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, can you please discuss where the fruit is sourced from and why you use the New York State Appalachian as opposed to a more region-specific AVA? Um, the fruit comes from our vineyards, vineyards that either uh, my dad or my brother owns in the Finger Lakes. Um, I think we acquire some grapes from outside of the Finger Lakes, but that may be the reason why we use the New York State Appalachian, but it's it's most of our grapes come from, from the Finger Lakes. All right. Uh, and the next one, and this is, this is one that you and I emailed about this week. Um, you use the word champagne. What are your thoughts on, on, what are your thoughts about the use of that word outside of the champagne region and the movement of folks pulling away from that? Well, again, you know, historically uh, when the, when the, when the French were trying to expand the concept of champagne in the late, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, you know, they were, they were encouraging, um, <laughs> they were encouraging us to use it. And um, there's a, there's a treaty that occurred in 2006, which they say essentially, you know, grand, grandparented in, uh, you know, those, 
those champagnes that were called champagnes up until that point. So we have a number of labels here that, that are well, well established before 2006, and we, we continue that. Um, you know, it's a little, it's a little dicey, but um, given our history and given the, the hundred and some odd million years that we've making champagnes, we, you know, we, we feel pretty confident that it's, that it's still a good, a good use of the term. Thanks. And uh, the last one I see, oh, there's actually, here's just a quick one. Uh, can you sell your wine in Europe? Um, I imagine we can. Uh, I don't think we're doing too much of that right now. All right. Uh, one more, and then I think we'll probably move on. Um, I know some Finger Lakes vineyards like Standing Stone were initially established to be gold seal for sparkling. Is there any collaboration with vineyards like these today? Um, well, we're not, we, we, um, um, Stanley Stone does terrific work and we're not, we're not essentially collaborating with them, but we, um, my dad, right before he left, um, the business in the late, um, late eighties acquired all of Taylor and Great Western and Gold Seals vineyards. And that included, um, some of the original Fournier acreage on the um, east side of Seneca Lake, which my brother now owns. So yeah, there's a lot of history and Standing Stone has a part of that. So, and we have, we have tremendous respect for their work. They, they do, they do great. They do great work there. Right. Thanks. And uh, actually well, one more question, just because I, I like seeing all the questions about hybrids. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your use of hybrid grapes? What led you to planting them and how many of your wines do you use them in? Well, I don't know. I think we use hybrids in probably 75% of our, of our wines. Hmm. Um, and again, I think it's just because it's the tradition that is Pleasant Valley. Um, you know, it's, it's just part of what, and I, other, you know, other amazing younger uh, winemakers are, are building on that and taking it a different direction. But we, we really feel like that's an important part of our history that we need to need to preserve and and improve on honestly perfect yeah so uh before i let you go patrick um what is your favorite way to enjoy this particular wine that you guys produce that's a that's a tough question for me len i think i think this is a great anytime champagne i mean it dresses up it dresses down it really just depends on the occasion and um you know uh we we just um we're, we're pretty proud of how it how it came out Great. Thank you very much, sir. You, you, you are also now off the hook and we're going to move on. Um, first, I'm going, to, I'm going to launch our second poll, which is uh, what styles of sparkling wine do you prefer? Just want to give everyone a chance to uh, give us a little feedback and, and see what, what, they, what they like. Um, and while, while, while that's going, Steve, it's, Steve's up next um, with his Glenora Brute, which is always one of my personal favorites. Um, it, it's your turn on the hot seat. Okay. Uh, when you're not drinking your own sparkling wine, and uh, I hope you'll tell us a little bit about your program. Here in a minute, what uh, what kind of sparkling wine do you usually find yourself drinking? Well, I'm always impressed with Gloria Ferrer. They they do great everything they make, and the prices are amazing. Uh, Rotor Estate is another one, but uh, many of our neighbors. I would mention many of the Finger Lakes uh, wineries, except I'd leave people out, so I, <laughs> I don't want to do that. But um, I'm excited about uh, the Gold Seal brand coming back. Uh, I cut my teeth on. Uh, Gold Seal Sparkling Wines with Guy DeVoe, who went 
on to start Mom Napa Valley. Um, and uh, DBX Sparkling Wine and uh, uh, at Mom is named after him. And if, I'm told that if you take a tour of Mom, they forget to tell you that he was in the Finger Lakes for 25 years. But anyway, uh, they act like he went from Epernay right to right to the <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, um, it's really uh, exciting for me to see the work that Pat and his uh, family are doing, uh, bringing back that Gold Seal brand. Uh, Chateau, well, it was Chateau Frank for a while, but Dr. Frank has some really uh, great sparkling wines. Uh, sparkling Point, they're not part of this panel, but uh, they do too. And I know uh, Lens, when Eric was there, did great stuff. And I have a lot of um, uh, confidence that uh, Thomas is going to continue that, or is. I just haven't had a chance to, to try them uh, yet. So, um, Bruce, I haven't gotten to try your stuff. Uh, my son actually has a cidery down near you. Uh, and he released his first pet net uh, this past month, uh, oh. made with grapes. <laughs> so. Sparkling, uh, runs in the, sparkling wine run, runs in the family then, Steve. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> it's pretty exciting to see this happen. And then uh, my grandson too, perhaps. So uh, there you uh, go. So not only the, the Franks and the Doyles, um, but the DeFrancescos. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Yeah, so that, thanks for that, Steve. Uh, you, so you have a pretty diverse sparkling wine background and program at, at uh, Glenora. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And then we can, uh, then we can talk about this wine in particular. Okay, so in uh, the... Um, uh, with the 87 vintage, um, we um, had an ambitious um, uh, idea to uh, uh, really put an emphasis on sparkling wines here at Glenora. And um, uh, we, we, I think the 82 vintage was our first, but with 87, we really ramped it up. And, um, uh, and in fact, the 88 Blanc de Blanc won big in uh, San Francisco in uh, 1991. That was kind of a... Um, a good recognition for New York wines at the time for uh, Finger Lakes wines, because um, at that point, uh, the writers thought we only made Lake Niagara, Lake Niagara and things like that. Uh, but uh, anyway, there's nothing wrong with any of those grapes. Uh, hybrids are really nice and natives and viniferous, but um, uh, our uh, classic method, Metro uh, Traditionnel products are made with, uh, we have a brute and a block to block. The brute that you're trying is 76% Pinot Noir and 24% Chardonnay. And we like to, we, we source grapes from um, uh, Seneca, Cayuga and um, Cuca Lakes. And uh, sometimes the west side of the lake, which is supposedly the cooler side because it gets the uh, morning sun, not the afternoon sun, but sometimes that's more uh, appropriate for sparkling uh, in a hot year. We've had plenty of hot years lately. So uh, so actually this one is uh, from the west side of Seneca, west side of Cayuga. Uh, and, um, and Rieslings also can do better in a little bit of uh, cooler sites on a, in a hot year. So we like to be able to have components that we can work with and uh, blend as we need. And uh, this has been in Tourage since uh, 2014. So it's been uh, six years on the East and um, we disgorge uh, four times a year typically. Uh, and uh, I don't like to leave it on, you know, on the cork all that long because it's, it starts developing at that point. So we like to have some extended uh, yeast contact. 
then we also make uh, transfer method sparkling with help uh, the help of Pleasant Valley. Uh, we take our wine over there and uh, use the transfer method and we're using Cayuga White. Um, we also are playing around with um, uh, encapsulated yeasts and we just released a uh, Cayuga with a Tenturier variety as, in, as a dosage, which makes it a nice pink color. So that's my kind of yeah, that, that's interesting. Actually, uh, you, you're talking about uh, making making some wine with, with um, Pleasant Valley. It leads us to, to one of the questions we just got. So that's a good segue that you didn't even know about. Um, I'm fascinated by quality tank method sparkling. So as a bit of a leading question, I'd love to hear from each producer if they think there's any room due to varieties, style, or anything else for quality Charmat in any part of New York. And, uh, I, you know, Steve, you, you can answer first, but I'd invite anyone else to come off of mute if they have a, an opinion as well. Well, I think that there's no reason a tank fermented sparkling wine can't be very good. It just is not that easy to get seven years of, of uh, yeast contact <laughs> in the tank, but there's no reason it can't be just as good as anything else with maybe a possible exception of the uh, bubble quality, uh, but that is a matter of technique and uh, knowing what you're doing, but there are some really good Charmat products out there uh, from Michigan, for example. Um, uh, they make some really good ones up there and um, Swedish Show does. And uh, Pat's products are bottle fermented, but finished in tanks and they can come out really good. And you can actually blend tourage, uh, different tourage together when you do it that way. And amazingly, uh, the Bellatory products and the Barefoot bubblies. When I've tasted those, they might be sweet and not my style, but technically they're pretty well made, and, and I have no doubt that they're they're uh, tank fermented. Sure, of course. Anybody else want to want to chime in on uh, on on Charmant method stuff? Thomas, Megan, Eric. All right, we can. Uh... Let's see. I mean, oh, hold on. Uh, two, two other questions for you, Steve. Okay. Uh, Glenora, off, Glenora often does the Dosage Your Own Sparkling event, which is a yep. cool way for people to learn about bubblies. Yep. Is that happening again this year? And are there any digital plans for educating about this process if you can't do it live in person? Well, we're going to do one day this week or this year instead of two. Uh, we do it the second weekend of uh, December. And people usually sign up the year before or after they've done it. And um, we uh, uh, will set up different dosage levels in the same wine and let them taste them and they decide which level of uh, sweetness they would like. And uh, then they uh, come down to the cellar and they get to disgorge their own uh, bottles and uh, dosage them the way they like them. And uh, it's been really popular. It's, it's been going on for at least uh, 30 years now. Yeah, that sounds like a really, really cool event. Um, one last question for you, Steve. And then, and then there's one, it's more of a high, more of a high level question that I'd like to ask everybody. Um, Steve, is the Chardonnay barrel aged at all when, it, when it's a still wine for this particular? Uh, sometimes we do. And in fact, um, this one isn't, but we, uh, the um, 2017 Blanc de Blanc actually has a couple of components uh, that were barrel fermented and uh, they were um, barrel fermented Pinot Blanc actually. Um, uh, that are blended in. So our Blanc de Blanc is, um, their, our current release is 100% Chardonnay, but the, um, we've got some Tourage coming up uh, that'll be uh, released in the next couple of years. They're gonna have some Pinot Blanc in them and uh, 
even a, a touch of Pinot Gris after being in Franciacorta. Uh, <laughs> two years go. ago, I got me interested in Pinot Gris a little bit. Great, great. Uh, so this is another question, uh, Steve, it isn't just for you. So I'd invite our other panelists to chime in. Um, Kate, this is a great question. Um, with all of these, I'm always curious about holiday pairings, a classic option and a weird option. People always love hearing about some oddball or non-fancy pairings, like, like, like popcorn with sparkling wine. Um, what are some other examples of, of some of your favorite holiday pairings? Well, uh, like Patrick, I think it's good with anything, except maybe candy corn and uh, kale. No, there's, there's nothing good with candy corn. That, that was... That was a Bartles and James commercial. Oh, was <laughs> from the seventies, from the eighties, before most of you guys were able to drink uh, <laughs> in the eighties. Uh, anyway, I like sparkling wine with anything. Literally, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, not just kidding, but sparkling goes with anything. And I, um, uh, I'm not great talking about wine and food pairings because I like to uh, eat and I like to drink wine. So. Everything tastes good to me. I mean, there's some things that don't, but um, obviously, but uh, I can almost enjoy anything, uh, any wine and any food. Sorry, that wasn't a very good. <laughs> no, it's, it's all good, Steve. Did, uh, does, does anybody else have an interesting or perhaps oddball sparkling wine pairing that they want to share? Yeah. Aaron uh, yeah. has something. Uh, yeah, I typically uh, make a candied bacon and it typically goes with all my dried wines or Dr. Frank's dried wines. So uh, Blanc de Blanc, Blanc de Noir usually goes really well with a spicy and sweet candied bacon. Um, so it's just a little odd, but I share it with all my family at uh, Thanksgiving as well as Christmas time. So it's my holiday treat. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. That's pretty good to me. I'm pretty sure candied bacon goes with anything though. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Anybody else? All right. I, I guess we, thank you very much. Oh, actually, hold on, Steve, before I let, let you go. Um, what is your favorite way to enjoy this particular wine? Well, like I said, any time by itself with food, uh, before we eat, uh, nice thing about um, being known for sparkling wine is that when we're doing a tasting, uh, we lead off with a, a glass of sparkling wine and it usually puts everybody in a good mood. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of helpful and uh there's so many nice wines being made in the finger lakes and everybody's got dry rieslings and cab francs but when you bring a sparkling it sets you apart a little bit yeah absolutely all right that, thanks very much steve i appreciate it thank you all right so now we're going to move on to the dr constantine frank 2016 blanc de noir um we, we have both megan frank and eric bauman with us today um so before we dive into the wine, which I'm pretty curious about because it's 75% uh, Pinot Meunier, which is pretty rare. Um, Megan, you want to tell us, can you, actually, hold on, again, I made a mistake again. Uh, when you're not drinking your own wines, what sparkling wines are you drinking? So there, there's two of you there, so we expect two different answers, please. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, so nice to be here with all of you. Uh, I definitely don't discriminate when it comes to, uh, you know, choosing a wine to try. I'm a big fan of... Uh, you know, traditional method sparklings from around the world. So like Franciacorta, I was lucky to go to Lombardy last summer. And that was really amazing. You know, Cava, uh, the corporate producers, the quality producers, they're doing amazing things. 
Um, but I love, I have a really soft spot for Tasmanian sparklings and sparklings from Australia. Uh, they're doing some really impressive things on there as well. So uh, lots, of, lots of cool things to try. In uh, my soft spot would be English wines. Um, kind of where this 2016 Blanc de Noir uh, lends itself uh, some assemblage or the, the blending of it um, was because I was drinking some English wines previous to this, uh, Nye Timber being one of them. And then where this wine kind of comes into play was a producer, um, Ridgeview Vineyards, which is adjacent to Night Timber. So first drinking Night Timber and then uh, feeling out uh, Ridgeview, um, where they play with a little bit more Pinot Meunier fractions, uh, as well as some others. But uh, if I stay uh, domestic, I would say Gruet, a lot of New Mexico uh, or New Mexico sparkling wine. Um, their price point seems to be reasonable and fairly good uh, quality. Um, as well as like everyone else on this panel, uh, Finger Lake Sparkling Wines, I always like to get out there and try what other people are doing. Great. Thanks, guys. Um, so, so Megan, I know that there's a long history of sparkling wine at Dr. Frank, so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about that, and then we can uh, hand it over to Eric to talk about this wine. Sure. Yeah, so um, our kind of sparkling history goes back to 1985. Um, but my great-grandfather started our winery back in 1962. He was a Ukrainian immigrant, a World War II refugee, and came here um, not speaking a word of English, uh, had a really difficult time starting out, but he did have a, a PhD in viticulture. So armed with that, you know, he kind of created a whole new life for our family and uh, started our winery on the western side of Cuca Lake and was the first person to successfully plant uh, the European grape varieties, Vitis vinifera, uh, here in the eastern United States. Um, but Constantine really didn't like sparkling wine. He um, sort of poo-pooed it. He would say that <laughs> the only reason the French make champagne is because they can't make, make a decent table wine that far north. So not, not the best. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure he got into a lot of fights with producers of champagne for that. Um, but his son felt the opposite. So his son was Willie Frank, who's my grandfather. Eric knew Willie very well as well. And uh, Willie was really bullish on traditional method sparkling wines, utilizing Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. And we also do Riesling sparkling. So he purchased this property where we're sitting now, our uh, deep stone cellars, where we um, host some food and wine experiences, but also all the sparkling production is here, just adjacent to our main winery. And um, really saw the potential. And to Pat's point, he actually labeled every bottle said Finger Lake Champagne up until his passing in 2006, um, where we now label the wine Semester Champenois. So very much a pioneer of traditional method sparkling. And this year we're celebrating our 35th anniversary. And, uh, you know, my aunt has, has played a great hand in that as well with working with producers in Champagne and also out in Sonoma, Napa. So it's great to have this kind of quality focus. And Eric joined us 14 years ago. 15. 15, oh, excuse me, 15 years ago uh, when my grandfather was looking to kind of step back and retire. I met Eric, who has a background in sparkling winemaking in California. And it's so rare to have that background. It's very, it's so specialized. Um, and uh, that same year, I believe, Willie, uh, Willie passed on 
unfortunately. So Eric has continued on, you know, the, the production with the sparkling wines and we're doing lots of really interesting and fun things, you know, to come. We still make, you know, the Blanc de Noir, Blanc de Blanc, the Brut, Brut Rosé. Um, we make sparkling, two different styles of sparkling Riesling, um, some, you know, really fun rosés as well. So I'll pass it over to Eric. Um, we call him Mr. Bubbles around here. So everyone's <laughs> welcome to call him that too, I guess. Hopefully that's okay. And we have the, the Blanc de Noir. So take yes. it away. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Um, uh, yeah, so we can get right into the 2016 Blanc de Noir. Um, I know Len had mentioned uh, he was surprised with the 75% Pinot Meunier fraction. Um, we typically hear, my, like Megan said, 15 years being here, um, our vineyards are kind of right outside this stone building out front is the Chateau Vineyard. And it's about 16 acres of vineyards there uh, with a lot of different grape varieties, but um, majority Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. And that's where I source all of the Chateau or the Dr. Frank sparkling now, but um, it's our Chateau Frank vineyard. So the Pinot Noir, the Pinot Meunier and the Chardonnay typically is what I'm looking for, my Blanc de Blanc, my Blanc de Noir, and whatever portion is kind of left of there, we'll, we'll, we'll use in the other programs, even the, you know, the Brute, obviously, but um, uh, wherever it may, may fit into the blend, depending on the yields we get. Uh, and that Pinot Meunier sits probably halfway down the vineyard in between a Pinot Noir vineyard and a Chardonnay vineyard. Um, Yields are, you know, we, we don't have a lot of Pinot Meunier. In the years previous, when I first started here, a lot of the Pinot Meunier production was typically um, just pressed uh, and used for our rosé program, almost uh, as a saignet, um, uh, soaked, cold soaked, and then I would bleed the juice from that and then press, and it would be my free run and my pressed juice. But typically I would use the free run for the rosé for that Pinot Meunier. Um, yields have kind of went, you know, back and forth year to year, depending on the year. Uh, this grape variety really sees, uh, especially the Pinot Noir and the Chateau Vineyard, they both see this kind of richness that the Chardonnay not, might not see. Uh, so year to year when we have a good ripe year, they definitely lend their hand to the Blanc de Noir program. Um, typically because of the yields of the Pinot Noir or the Pinot Meunier, it's been such a small portion of the Pinot, uh, of the Blanc de Noir blend. We use a little bit, usually five to 10% in the Brut blend. And then I need it for something for the Rosé, the Celebre Rosé blend. But certain other years, our Rosé has been a bigger production leaving me maybe possibly uh, a little bit more yield of Pinot Meunier to do something um, in other years for uh, a Blanc de Noir or Brut. So this 2016 um, was an interesting year because uh, in 2014 was a bad winter. If we can remember that back then, uh, 2015, we lacked the vintage. We took off almost, Dr. Frank took the whole vintage off. So. I didn't have a 2015 vintage. Um, so 16 produced some challenges as far as production. Uh, we had to stick with the brute program and we had to make a little bit heavier 
of a production of brute that I'm typically uh, producing. So with that, a lot of the Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, uh, Pinot Noir, or Pinot Meunier all went to a big brute blend in 2016. Uh, the remainder Chardonnay out of the Chateau Vineyard made a Blanc de Blanc blend. And then the, the remainder of what I had of Pinot Meunier as well as Pinot Noir from that Chateau blend that didn't make the brute, um, luckily was rich enough. It had some dull acidity. I had to uh, add some acid that year. I had one gram per liter just to bump it up a little bit on both the Pinot Noir and the Pinot Meunier. Um, in my notes here, we harvested uh, early September, so it is a little bit, um, it was September 9th and September 10th uh, for the Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, I, I harvested September 13th of 2016. But that richness that it had, uh, lend it, once we were able to sit down and taste it, and like, like Megan said earlier, um, with, with not only the winemaking, at Dr. Frank, we have a lot of little hands that play a part, but the family comes into a part and Barbara, uh, Megan's aunt, uh, Fred's sister, uh, Willie's daughter, um, is a huge part of the sparkling program. I send her samples all the time. Uh, we taste, she comes up here, we taste. So this was kind of, she's more traditional though than maybe even me and Megan kind of are at, at times. Uh, so it, it definitely lends to the tasting process though, and gets us back to the drawing board over and over and over to see what we have. Um, she wasn't a big fan of going the 100% Pinot Meunier route where I wanted to try even that year with what we had left, but she did approve of the little bit of Pinot Noir that we added into it to balance it out a little bit. So with these little blends, um, we've always, me and Megan anyways have discussed producing 100% Pinot Meuniers um, just to try them, see where the ageability is, to, to see what we can do in the future. And this one was kind of going that route, but with a little bit of uh, Pinot Noir to, to balance it out. Great, thanks Eric. We, we do have a few questions. Um, first one, does Dr. Frank designate specific vineyard plots for sparkling production or are the grapes selected on a year-to-year -year basis? And, uh, and what are the grape qualities you look for for your sparkling wine program? Uh, specific range of bricks, physiological ripeness, sugar accumulation, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I mean, primarily, like I said, our, our Blanc de Normer, Blanc de Blanc uh, brew program we look for our Chateau Vineyard. Um, it's, the, it's on the west side of Cuca Lake, like Steve was mentioning earlier, a little cooler site. Uh, we have a lot more control. Obviously it's our vineyard. We do purchase some vineyards um, or some grapes from vineyards, other producers, and that's changed year to year throughout my 15 year career uh, here. Um, and you know, depending on quality of some other grape growers and uh, production and, and years, it might fall into the Blanc de Noir, it might fall into the, the Brute as well, depending on, on needs and yields. Uh, but we definitely look at our own Chateau fruit first. I feel even uh, on a year like this with the, with the drought, um, our fruit tends to have a lot more fruit concentration 
that I see from some growers from other places. Um, it just kind of maybe managed a little bit differently uh, or the age of the vineyard and maybe even the site specific. But right now, uh, yeah, that's something we're looking for, a little bit more site specific. Um, uh, single vineyard, vineyard select uh, production, you know, in the, in the future. Yeah. Looking at some more planning going on, even with Pinot Meunier here in the future, as well as Pinot Noir that, that we need in, desperately in the Finger Lakes. Oh, and the bricks. Yeah, bricks, I typically anywhere, it really depends. I try to go off of pH most mostly versus right. bricks or a TA. And I'll shoot for right, right even three, um, 295 to three, maybe even 3.1. Um, obviously, I don't have that luxury all the time um, from sampling in the vineyard, just a little berry sampling to when you can actually pick and hand harvest we do everything hand harvested uh so anywhere from 17 and a half bricks to maybe even 20 bricks uh really is where most of the fruit comes in but i do adjustments like i said with this one i'll adjust that ph uh, i'll make some additions with the the acidity uh it's it's nothing like i was used to out in california but uh, <laughs> yeah, my dad definitely loves, yeah my dad loves to tell the story about how eric when he joined us he had a very sore back and yes. he was constantly going to the chiropractor because he was lifting huge bags of tartaric acid <laughs> and now his back has healed so that's good <laughs> yes we have natural acidity here it's very nice um yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I'm really enjoying just taking the harvest as it comes and adjusting things as needed, as minute as they seem to be year to year. Yeah. And now one last question before I ask you my last question. Um, is the aging capability of a Pinot Meunier dominated sparkling wine different than others? I don't know if you've had any experience aging a wine with, with this much Pinot Meunier in it, before to know how it develops differently? Um, well, recently I just was given a bottle of an Ontario producer from KEW. Um, he makes 100% Pinot Meunier sparkling wine. It was his third vintage. It was natural, so no dosage, nothing, a natural brute style. Um, it was a 2017 vintage that I tried, uh, and I thought it really did have an age presence there, and it was a little bit, uh, I mean, there was a freshness there, but it, it wasn't showing as fresh as even the 16 Blanc de Noir um, with the 75%, but even my first year here in production, the 2005, I was able to uh, just do a few cases of 100% uh, Pinot Meunier sparkling that was left part of that yield that didn't make the Brut or the Blanc de Noir that I bottled up. And like Steve was talking about it in encapsulated yeast, I just threw it together. It wasn't part of my tirage in, in typically the next year when I bottle these wines. Um, I did, did it in the lab with a little bit of encapsulated yeast and tried it. Um, now, throughout the years, we've tried this wine with different winemakers that have shown up uh, from abroad, and it does, it, it tends to, to lean to an age um, really quick, 
Mm -hmm. I feel so I think the balance there tends to be where the acidity is. And so sure. as long as I keep the acidity high, pH really low, um, I think we can get to a, a nice aged Pinot Meunier that uh, can have a little bit of an extended lease. Great, thank you. Uh, maybe, all right, so um, now it's your turn to tell us your, your favorite way to enjoy that the, this is Blanc de Noir. Oh, favorite way to enjoy it. You want to go first? <laughs> yeah. Besides, think, in a, besides in a glass and into your mouth, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think there's tremendous, you know, Kate was talking about food pairing. There's tre yeah. tremendous potential with this wine. Like uh, we uh, actually had it with filet mignon the other few weeks ago and it stood up to mm. play because it has, you know, the two red grapes, you know, it's quite a rich style. Um, I think they're, you know, boxing in traditional method sparkling, really any sparkling into one category only goes with white meat, white, whatever, white fish yeah. is sort of limiting yourself. So uh, it can really stand up to some heavier dishes, I think. And um, yeah, definitely we'll be enjoying it this holiday season for sure. Yeah, I mean, like Megan said, I think it's very versatile. Um, it's showing some of those deeper red fruits uh, on the end palette. So I think it will really uh, lend its hand, especially with this holiday coming up with a lot of those meat dishes. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm a big ham guy. I like the, the ham with the pineapple cherry dressing, something like that. I think this would go really well with that. Uh, a little bit of sweetness on that, that caramelized ham. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how my, my family enjoys this wine this holiday. <laughs> uh, this wine to me represents uh, the Finger Lakes a little bit um, only because of the natural acidity that we have there and the ability to transform something almost four years later with these nice small integrated bubbles, a, a nice pre de mousse on top, you know, like I've seen from all these other producers here in the Finger Lakes. I mean. Great. Thanks, guys. Um, all right. So you guys are, are, are off to the, the dual hot seat. So thank you very much. Um, before we get to Thomas, we have a couple of questions that are for more for everybody. So uh, please feel free to chime in on these. Uh, the first one, to all panelists, do you see sparkling wine as a growth potential for your business in years to come? And, and Bruce, I, I think it indicates that you, you want to answer this. So feel free to jump in first. Yeah, um, I, I absolutely think that uh, sparkling wine is going to be a, a step uh, forward in our, our production. Definitely want to get into traditional met, um, process, you know, using a method champignons. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited to get into that to make a, uh, you know, a big time sparkler. Right. Uh, Steve or Thomas, anyone else want to jump in? Sure. Um, in the uh, 80s, when all the champagne houses were moving to California and other places, uh, it was kind of frustrating to us here that they weren't more interested in what we can do in the Finger Lakes because it's, it seems to me it's uh, the growing conditions are a lot more similar to champagne than, uh, than California is. Now, California makes great sparkling wines, I told you, a couple that I really like there. And I suppose the infrastructure wasn't here at the time for them to, you know, be able to make a hundred thousand cases of sparkling wine off the bat. So, uh, but uh, I think that 
uh, we're in a perfect place to do sparkling and there's plenty of history uh, and very good examples of it. And um, I'd like to see it uh, uh, get more attention than it does. And, and obviously the other products we make here uh, are really nice too. And I love the viticultural diversity that's here anyway. Uh, and even uh, Dr. Richard Smart uh, has fond memories of getting his master's degree at uh, Cornell and working with things like Chardonnay and uh, you know uh, some of the really successful hybrids from uh, Cornell uh, and other places. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, I think that there's so much potential for sparkling wine here. Thanks, Steve. Uh, and then there's another question for 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 the group um, again before we get to Thomas. Uh, to all panelists, how has COVID affected your growing and harvesting year? Well, it didn't hurt the vineyards at all. Uh, <laughs> it did change our yeah. business model somewhat, and um, the uh, we were the restaurant was closed for a while. The um, festivals and jazz concerts that we have were uh, uh, canceled. We do a lot of weddings; those are all postponed. Um, but our direct-to-consumer sales has been uh, was actually better and uh, quite a bit better. And then. Uh, uh, the tasting room has picked up again and is doing pretty well too, but it's certainly a disruption. Anybody else have any comments about uh, COVID specific to harvest and, and uh, anything that you guys are working on? Otherwise we can... Uh, harvest, has been, harvest has been very interesting and, uh, you know, managing, uh, you know, picking crews and, and uh, also uh, the crush pad, making sure people are trying to keep as socially distant as possible, et cetera. Um, it, there's definitely is a lot of concern, especially down, you know, in our area, sure. uh, in Dutchess County, the, the, obviously the numbers are climbing, uh, but it has been quite a challenge. Uh, I'd also echo that the, uh, um, that Steve just mentioned about the tasting room doing fairly well and being able to manage that through this, uh, this trying time. Um, I'm glad people still came out and we've done, uh, it, it, it's been fun watching the tasting room and the people uh, enjoying coming out there and looking out over the vineyard. Absolutely. All right, great. Thanks guys. Uh, last but certainly not least, we have Thomas from Lens Winery with, uh, with the only 100% Pinot Noir sparkler of the seminar. Um, Thomas, I, I know because I've talked to you about this, uh, that you have an affinity for Pacific Northwest Syrah, but when you're not drinking your own sparkling wine, what kind of sparkling wine do you, do you favor? Um, I, I drink a lot of local sparkling wines. Leib Cellars has um, a nice one, Sparkling Points, right around the corner, Pomrock. Uh, in our household, my fiance has a rule that uh, we have to always keep a bottle of sparkling in the fridge because she likes to say every day is a good enough reason to celebrate being together. Absolutely. Uh, I've, I've uh, recently been be becoming more obsessed with uh, pet gnats. Channing Daughters has some really nice uh, examples. There's like a super aromatic intensity that uh, I, I get out of some of those. Cool. All right. Thanks very much. So uh, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Lens, about this wine, and then... Um... I didn't mention this to you earlier in the week, but I also think we, we should mention the, 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 the RD wine that isn't available right the second, but you're, you're going to have again soon. 
Um, yeah, so Lens, uh, planted in 1978. We're all the way at the east end of Long Island. Uh, in 1978, it was the second vineyards planted on Long Island. Um, and I think back then they didn't really know what they were doing, but as everyone, you know, you wanted to plant Pinot Noir because, uh, you know, everyone wants to make that great red Pinot Noir. It's like every winemaker's dream. However, uh, Pinot Noir is really hard to grow on Long Island, really moderated by our uh, maritime climate we have here, surrounded by three bodies of water. We get a lot of high humidity, coastal storms in the fall sometimes. It can, Pinot Noir seems to be the first grape that wants to fall apart. So Eric Fry, my predecessor, really developed a, a sparkling wine program. So we're able to pick the fruit much earlier before it even has the chance to, uh, chance to rot. And then, um, yeah, so, so, so this wine is 100% Pinot Noir. Is, is it always 100% Pinot Noir or do you occasionally use some of your Chardonnay in this as well? Uh, it's been adjusted over the years. Like in 2016, when I started taking over the blends in 2016, I added like 10% uh, Chardonnay, but then 17, I decided I didn't like that. So I buffered it back and actually made a 100% uh, Blanc de Blanc, which will be coming out uh, in the future. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think, 03 was the last official release of a, a wine that had like 40% of Chardonnay. Okay, cool. And uh, oh, here's, here's another question. Here's a question for you. That's, that's well-timed. Um, for decades, Long Island has been promoted as a region with a climate akin to Bordeaux, with Merlot and Cab grown in many vineyards. But now Pinot Noir seems to have gained notoriety in the region. Is Pinot Noir being considered as more suitable for Long Island? Uh, I, I do. I would not plant it uh, if it was up to. It's, yeah, I don't think anyone would. I don't think anyone would. <laughs> rot, for sure. Yeah, um, but but you you are making a, a a red one right now, correct? I mean, so when we have a good year, we have a good year, and I think it's probably every one out of four. So in 2019, we had like a you know perfect conditions. I decided to leave a little bit of our. Uh, the only like eight rows of our Pinot Noir block, I got you know less than a, about a ton of fruit out of uh, out of out of the uh, what, what I left. So it's a very small batch, and it came up. You know, we got an extra like four weeks almost of hang time on the fruit, really developed uh, nicely. But you know, it's maybe one out of every four years we're we're able to do that. So from a commercial scale standpoint, it doesn't make sense for a consistency of product, which is where the sparkling really. Uh, is, is consistent because we're able to pick it at a much lower um, ripeness. It never, never just gets a chance to, to turn on us. Right, right. Uh, another question just came in. Uh, when do you normally pick the Pinot for this wine? Uh, so typically it's you know, around Labor Day weekend. The last two years was, I believe, September 11th was the, the official harvest date for the Pinot for the last two years, at least. And, and are, are you you're making that picking decision based on pH or bricks yep. or some combination? I, uh, a couple of things that I've, I've learned with, with making the sparkling is there's two, two key points to me. Uh, the first one is your harvest decision, going out tasting, walking the vineyards, tasting every day, because you're a really small window of when that fruit is going to be, you know, get the most fruit flavors while maintaining that pH and TA balance. Um, so we harvest typically around 18 and a half bricks to 19 looking for a pH under 3.2, uh, TA, high eights is, is pretty typical. Um, and then the next real important thing when it comes to sparkling is uh, how you handle it in the press. So being 
gentle as possible. I make as many press fractions as possible, putting uh, a pH meter into the press and monitoring tasting because you can really quickly extract too many flavors that you don't want to that will be exaggerated at the end product with the, with the sparkling. It also right. allows byproduct. You make a, a rosé um, with the, the heavy press fraction. So after I hit a certain press fraction, roll the press up, go out, get lunch, get a couple of beers, come back, press, uh, press into our, our rosé program. Nice. Um, there's a question that came in for, actually, here's one for you first. Um, how, how much Pinot Noir is planted at Lens or was planted initially and has Lens yanked or replanted any? And if you have replanted, what, what have you replanted with? Uh, we have not yanked or replanted. Uh, we have about two and a half acres. Uh, the spacing is about 9.3, uh, sorry, nine, nine by three. Um, it's all unilateral cordon, you know, single cordon. Most of it is spur pruned. Um, we've found the balance of that comes out a little bit better than cane pruning. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we get about one cluster per shoot on average uh, and about two tons, you know, two tons per acre is our average. Right. So, so th this is a, another question um, for, for, for the whole group, but, but Thomas, you get to answer it first because you're, you're off mute right now. Um, I'd love to hear from everyone how climate change has affected your vineyards and has that changed what you've planted or what you're choosing to use? Has it changed how you're farming? Is anyone working on, a, on more sustainable methods or, or organic farming? So there's a few questions packed into one question there. Um, on organic farming, I think climate change would make it almost harder for us to go more organic. We get, seem to get more late season uh, weather patterns, uh, which I hope don't go, you know, I hope they go away. I think a little bit of warmer climate might help us until of course we go underwater. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I also see a potential for growing uh, some more Rhone varietals on the Long Island, which I look forward to expanding. Anybody else want to chime in on, on, on climate change? Um, as I mentioned, uh, the um, aspect, I didn't mention that particularly, but which uh, side of the lake the grapes are on. Uh, it's the um, sun angle that has a lot to do with uh, the, what kind of grapes is, are going to ripen. And um, uh, so some of the cooler parts I'm finding are more suitable for Riesling and uh, sparkling wine uh, components. And uh, the warmer parts are better for Syrah and Merlot, uh, perhaps. Uh, but the trouble is if we just think that everything's gonna be like Bordeaux in a few years. Uh, we still have a lot of disruptive weather. Uh, if we wanted two and a half inches in July of rain, uh, we don't need it all in one afternoon with a drought the rest of the time. Uh, so those things are concerning and they do make it a little bit trickier to, uh, I think, reduce our inputs in the, in the vineyard. But um, uh, so it's, sort of a moving thing, moving target, I think. Anybody else want to chime in on, on climate change and varieties, yeah. Bruce? Yeah, one of the things I wanted to mention that, you know, climate change also includes events, especially in the winter, when you still get those uh, deep dives in the temperature. So the survival of a lot of the vines, especially where we are, especially up in the Finger Lakes, 
if you get some, you know, minus 12 degree temperatures like we did two, two years ago, where uh, we had two or three days in a row where it dropped to minus 12, you can have quite a bit of damage in the vineyard. So right. you still have to moderate what, you know, yeah, you may get a longer growing season, but you may not get through the winter with those varieties. Right, right. Yeah, that, that is the important thing to remember. The climate change isn't the same as global warming. Correct. All right. Um, there is one, one other question. This is another general one for um, the people doing traditional method. Um, do you hand riddle? And um, if so, for how long typically? So Eric, Steve, Thomas. So, uh, so at Lens, we do everything, everything by hand. We don't uh, 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 capability of doing any other way. So everything I do is by hand. We you know, hand riddle. It takes me, I don't know, a week or so to, to hand riddle, um, disgorging everything by hand, bottle by bottle. Uh, it, it makes it so I have a rolling disgorgement. It takes me almost a full year almost to uh, disgorge a full vintage of wine. So they do change from the beginning because you'll have almost another year of least contact hmm. from the start to the end of uh, a vintage. So... Um... With uh, the invention of the zero pellet, the gyro pellets, um, they came up with uh, some riddling aids that help to uh, um, help the yeast along so you don't have to uh, do so much uh, jiggling and tapping the bottles in the riddling racks. And um, we, uh, we fill our tourage, uh, Aquanora, and then we ship it to Pleasant Valley over in uh, Hannesport and where it ferments and bends on its sides, uh, on their sides. And then uh, we bring it back after um, it's uh, close to time to start disgorging. And we uh, shake up the yeast, spin them, put them in boxes, send them back to Pleasant Valley. The truck ride, 45 minute truck ride uh, helps. And then uh, we bring it back to Glenora. If it's ready, fine. If not, it goes for another truck ride. Uh, so uh, we pay some forklift fees for that, but it uh, saves us. Uh, uh, riddling in racks takes up a lot of room. It takes up a lot of time to put them in the racks, but uh, you can really um, fine tune uh, how it how it works. And uh, and the age of the yeasts makes a difference in how it uh, how it riddles too. So. Um, the thing about uh, automating that is you don't uh, get to fine tune that as well as you get to by hand, but we're not actually riddling in racks by hand. Eric? Uh, yeah, so here, uh, when I first started, uh, a lot more was hand riddled. Now, most of my hand riddling racks are mostly for dosage wines and wines to look at the, the next uh, vintages. Um, but uh, right now is mostly the automatic riddling, uh, the gyro pallet, like Steve said. I currently have four of them in use um, for the demand here. Um, everything, I, I got a little semi-automatic disclosure. Uh, we do about 360 to 420 bottles an hour. Um, wow. Goes on to an automatic or semi-automatic corker. I guess I put it on the, the the track of the corker and then it gets the cork and the wire hood. Um, I even have now a, a new machine for us is a cork orientator 
that feeds the corker, um, orientates the right side of the cork and goes to the corker. Um, new, new labeling, we've kind of um, put a lot of attention to this back in 2016 when I had my old um, Dosana disgorging unit um, kind of starting to leak on me and fail. Uh, I would have had to send it back into Champagne uh, at uh, Grillier, or which was bought out by TDD Machines, uh, and they would have had to um, fix it and send it back. So, it, so at that time, instead of doing that, we were looking to um, look for better equipment and to uh, move forward, obviously with uh, bigger productions coming in. So a semi-automatic disgorger at the time was, was needed, was necessary. Um, and it's definitely keeping up our demand. Uh, my riddling program through the gyro pellets is about a nine day program, but I can do, it's, it's, it's computer generated. So I can add um, whatever program I want. I mean, it's, it's almost endless what they give you. Um, you can adjust it, you can uh, mimic different programs of where you wanna start your degree versus how you want it to turn and how, how often you want it to turn, so. Yeah, if, if you guys don't mind me asking, how, how much is, is, one, is one of those machines? Uh, typically, yeah, I, I got it used from uh, Jay Winery where I used to work. Um, they were uh, downsizing a lot of their stuff when um, actually just recently when they were bought out by Gallo. Mm -hmm. uh, and I happened to be out there on a vacation uh, and went to visit some friends and all these machines were sitting in their parking lot. So, uh, <laughs> I quickly uh, made some calls and uh, we worked something out, but um, typically new, they can be 10 to 15 grand. Um, computers anywhere from three to five grand to run it. Yeah. Um, you know, it kind of depends. And then you need the riddling bins and it depends on your growth from there. Okay, thanks. Um, all right, so uh, th that's it for the questions. Um, Thomas, before I before I let you go, I need to know what your favorite way to enjoy this cuvee is. Uh, for me, uh, I would have to say one of the benefits of uh, COVID is we've had all these like roadside oyster stands pop up everywhere, and they basically are selling oysters on the side of the road at wholesale prices. Uh, <laughs> and I've really taken advantage of uh, of that. Winter wintertime shellfish is is definitely my jam with uh, with sparkling wine. Right. All right, thanks very much. Uh, so we, you're off the hot seats. Um, be, be, before we wrap up totally, I have one final poll for everybody. If you could just give us, so just let, let us know what, what your favorite wine was today. Um, I don't see any other questions coming in. Um, if there are any that they, they come in after we, we wrap up, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll capture those and we'll make sure that, we, that we, we follow up with you. Again, I just want to thank the New York Wine and Grape Foundation for inviting me to host this. Um, to all of our panelists, thank you so much for giving us your time. We know it's the tail end of harvest, but you're still incredibly busy. So we really appreciate you spending some time with us today. And to all of our attendees, thank you as well. I, I know we're all, we're all busy trying to figure out what our lives are like right now, but um, we really appreciate it. We, we hope you learned something today and uh, ho hopefully you, uh, you, you fall in for New York sparkling wine the way that we all have. So uh, that's it for me. Jen, is there anything else we need, we need to cover before we wrap up?
Your hope we're all set. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, we'll be sending out a follow-up with a video and a survey. We encourage you to take that, as well as the contact information for all the wineries. Great. Thanks again, everybody, and have a great day. Thanks for having us.